It's always weird when you're setting up and everybody's just staring at you. But uh, how are y'all doing? Doing all right? Yeah, it's okay. You can be casual. Uh, not, not that I want a ton of interaction, but you can be casual. Uh, so my name is Marco. I serve as the, uh, as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McCallum. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for worship, being here with us. Um, I got a couple of things for you, but if you have a Bible, uh, while I ramble or as I ramble onto those things, uh, we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 16, uh, verses 7 through 11. And so while you uh, load your Bible or open your Bible, I'll go ahead and ramble uh, for a couple of minutes as we start our time this morning. If you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to grab lunch or coffee because that seems to keep us going. And so uh, please fill out a connect card. You can drop it in the offering basket later on during service, or you can take it to the information or connect desk in the back. Uh, we'd love to connect. We'd love to hang out. Uh, in addition to that, uh, also in the rows that are before you, uh, there are Bibles. So if you don't have one, if you forgot your sword of the spirit this morning, you may have a Bible that is on us. If you know someone who would benefit from having a Bible, please take one uh, and hook them up. So last week we started this sermon series on the Holy Spirit, and, and I kind of just want to give a quick overview of, uh, of where we're headed with the Holy Spirit um, in terms of the series. Uh, <clears throat> when it comes to the Holy Spirit, what we are doing is uh, we are taking five weeks, pretty much all the Sundays in December, to kind of answer the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? And so uh, we understand that uh, we cannot uh, conclude uh, and all of uh, uh, his attributes in only five weeks, um, but we're going to do our best. We're going to cover a couple of different topics already. Last week, we walked through regeneration, and that proved to be some fruitful conversation and discussion, uh, so that was pretty cool. hope you guys uh, had some of that yourselves. Um, man, I'm just going to pause and be honest. I totally forgot, Izzy, I'm sorry. Uh, Izzy's our worship leader who was up here. Uh, I forgot that we added one more song, so I'm like on coffee. I'm like ready to go, man. Like I, I, sh I should have been preaching like 30 minutes ago. Not not that I didn't want you playing music. It, you know, I'm just, I'm going, man. Like my, my mind's going a couple miles an hour. I'm sorry. Um, I, I see sounds. Um, give me a second. Yes. Although I don't think it's the spirit, I think it's caffeine, um, <laughs> if I'm just honest. Uh, okay, so here we go. We're going to dive into our time, but yeah, so we're taking five weeks to walk through a series in the Holy Spirit. I pray that it blesses you, uh, and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's, I think that's my introduction for, for our time. I really want to just go, because I, I got a lot of energy. So earlier this week, I, I found myself in two contexts, or I found myself in two settings, one on Wednesday and then one on Friday, where in each of these settings, uh, we were sharing struggles and challenges, but in each of these settings, we were encouraging one another to do the same. The first one was on Wednesday night. Now on Wednesday night, uh, uh, I... I, along with Christina Peña, she's our connections director, we lead uh, the student ministry. And so that's always a fun time because I wouldn't want to lead another group of students. They're awesome. And so on Wednesday, uh, all of us were discussing our experience when it comes to pressure. We were discussing everything from external pressure to internal pressure to perceived pressure and to the very real pressure that we experience day in and day out. And in our time, as we looked at scripture, we saw that the word of God was begging us the question, well, who do you say that Jesus is? 
And the goal of our time on Wednesday was ultimately to be reminded of our identity in Christ in light of the pressure that we experience. Fast forward on Friday, uh, on Friday night, my wife and I lead a, a missional community, and, and so we split up with our group for prayer. And so the men and I went outside, and, and we were sharing everything from our struggles, uh, our challenges that we were facing in our current season. We were confessing sin, and uh, we were even praising or sharing praises for the season that we find ourselves in. And uh, after each person spoke, two or three other men would speak encouragement and to the person who just finished sharing, and then right on the spot we'd pray for them. Now I share these contexts because there was one really loud similarity and, and, uh, present in each one, and that was persuasion. In other words, whether it was our struggles that we were sharing, our sin that we were confessing, or praises that were being shared, persuasion was what everyone was doing for one another. We were persuading one another through encouragement and exhortation for one another to fix our eyes on Jesus, his grace, and his promises. As I reflected on those two days, I can only attribute, uh, I can only attribute that persuasion, that work to the Holy Spirit in the individual lives of these men and women. I say that because when it comes to the ministry of conviction, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning, it is not only a legal declaration of guilt, but it is also one that involves persuasion. In our time this morning, I want you to know, just like every Sunday I try to give you my main idea, here's what it is. I want you to know this, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit not only reveals, but persuades us of our need for righteousness that is not our own. I'll say that one more time. The conviction of the Holy Spirit reveals and persuades us of our need for a righteousness that is not our own. And so once again, if you just got here, we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. I'll read it, and then I'll pray. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray. God, as we come before you, Lord, I pray that man, our, our hearts and our minds are primed and prepped to hear your word, that they are primed and prepped as a result of singing songs to the glory of your name so that we would walk into a time of the preached word to continue to worship you, but to worship you as a result of what you are revealing to us through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, in this time, we ask that you would be present among us, and the truth is you are. 
But in addition to your presence, would you be at work in us? Would you be at work in us transforming our hearts? Would you be at work in us, not just wrecking our hearts, but making yourself known, making much of Jesus in our time? God, I pray that as we walk through this series in the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would come to know Him better. I pray that ultimately you, Holy Spirit, would point us to Jesus and our need for Him. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the guests that are here. pray that this would give glory to your name and that I would just be set aside. So we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So as we dive into John 16, I think it is fair, I think it is right that we begin first by defining conviction. The reason I think it is important to define conviction is because I think we normally or regularly only define half of it. And so as I mentioned earlier, conviction does involve a legal declaration of guilt. Conviction, it is not just a word found in scripture, but it is also a word that is used in our court system. It is a legal declaration of guilt. And because it is a legal declaration of guilt, it is not random. When we begin to talk about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, he is not simply convicting us of our sin randomly, or he is not convicting us of random sins. He is convicting us of very specific offenses. And the truth is that that is only half of the work of conviction by the Holy Spirit. The second half involves persuasion, where the Holy Spirit is at work aiming to convince you and I to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Those are the things that are happening within conviction. And when we read through John 16, we see that Jesus is not only walking the disciples through uh, his departure, but he is also walking them through the significance of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus explains to his disciples that he must return to the Father and that uh, as a result, he will send the helper, that is the Holy Spirit. And for you and I, this matters for two reasons. I'm sure these are not the only two reasons, uh, but for the sake of time, it matters for two reasons. The first one is, and if you're taking notes, I mean, you can uh, or not. But anyway, the first one is that Jesus's departure and his return to the Father isn't random. In other words, he's not just clocking out. He's not just telling the disciples, okay, I'm, uh, I'm good to go. The Holy Spirit's coming. I'm out. In other words, again, it is not random. Him saying that the Holy Spirit must come means that the work by which we are reconciled to God, that is redemption, would be complete. In other words, his role, his primary mission, that is to reconcile man to God, would have been complete or must be complete. Number two, it matters because Jesus has already told the disciples about the Holy Spirit. When you rewind to John 14, Jesus isn't only looking at how the Holy Spirit is going to work in them personally and individually, but he is also looking ahead to see how uh, the Holy Spirit would be at work through these disciples concerning the birth of the church, concerning people who would come to know Jesus through the Holy Spirit at work in these 12 men. 
Jesus explains that there are three areas where the Holy Spirit would bring about conviction. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so in our time, what I want to do is I want to make it personal, and then I want to expand it beyond us, right? So beginning in John 16, here's, here's what Jesus says. And when he comes, that is, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Under the conviction of sin, you and I need to be honest. You and I need to be honest because it is when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin that we are first exposed. If you've ever been convicted of your sin, you realize that you have now been exposed. Your heart has been exposed. Your intentions have been exposed. Additionally, it is because we are exposed that you and I are then rightfully declared guilty. And even as we begin to talk about guilt or the declaration of guilt, it's, the problem is, well, let me, let me back, like, back up on that. When it comes to that, the problem isn't so much with you and I being guilty the problem is that you and I debate on what sin actually is. You and I debate on how bad it could actually be. And in this section, Jesus connects sin to disbelief. He connects sin to disbelief. Not only does it expose our depravity, but the root of our sin. There's this old dead guy. He's a Puritan. His name is Stephen Sharnock. Here's what he says concerning sin and disbelief. He says, all sin is founded in a secret atheism. It's kind of a bold statement. Say it one more time. All sin is founded in a secret atheism. In this section, once again, Jesus is connecting sin to disbelief. And when we look at what Jesus is saying and we contrast that to what this dead Puritan is saying, here's what he means. When we sin, we are not just, or we are not actually disbelieving the existence of God, we are disbelieving God himself. At the fundamental root of our sin is disbelief. That God isn't good, but dead. This belief not only separates us from God, but our issue is that we must negotiate. Or better yet, our issue is that we want to negotiate and not experience conviction. When the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin, remember, it's not so much like you and I would agree, I hope, you and I would agree on, yes, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Where we would begin to negotiate is, what is sin really? What is sin really? How bad could sin really be? And when presented before God's word and a holy God, this is where it starts to get really tense because you and I want to justify our decisions for sin. You and I essentially want to negotiate with God rather than actually experiencing conviction. And the reason we don't want to experience conviction is because we don't want to be convicted. 
right? I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. We don't want to experience conviction because we don't want to experience conviction. The problem is that negotiation impedes righteousness. Negotiation impedes righteousness. And so the first work of conviction by the Holy Spirit is declaration. When it comes to convicting us of sin, he is making a declaration of our guilt. Now, we could stay there and we could just feel like crap, right? And I'm not going to do that. At least that's not what Jesus does, right? The next thing that he says is that the Holy Spirit convicts us in terms of righteousness. And so now I want to talk about the persuasion of righteousness. You see, the accomplishing of redemption on the cross by Jesus on behalf of sinners is the hope to the tension between conviction of sin and judgment. In other words, the Spirit doesn't just leave us in our conviction. And he doesn't just take us to judgment. But in conviction, we are stripped of all self-righteousness and are being persuaded of the righteousness of Christ. However, we cannot be made aware of our need for righteousness until we are humbled. And we cannot be humbled until we have been made aware of our sin. It's not just like we're convicted of sin, then we go to righteousness. The conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit ought to humble us. It's not just this agreement to the guilt. It's the agreement to guilt which brings us to humility. Humility is what brings us before God because we are recognizing our sin. That's where things like repentance take place. But more so than repentance, that is where we are pointed to the righteousness of Christ. Because what the Holy Spirit is doing is stripping you of your self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit isn't going to work to tell us that the, let me back up. The work of the Holy Spirit isn't to tell us that the righteousness we need is found somewhere. His work is to tell us that the righteousness we need is found in someone. When our eyes and hearts are fixed upon the righteousness of Christ, we learn that we're actually not righteous, and that's the point of the gospel. That is the point of the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and then persuading us to look upon Jesus and his righteousness to remind you that not only am I going to strip you of your self-righteousness, but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm actually going to meet you where you are and point you to Jesus. I'm going to point you to the one who is righteous. I'm going to point you to the one who paid your debt with his credit. I'm going to point you to the one who through his obedience paid for your disobedience. And as a result, he is going to give you his righteousness. As that happens, that's what strips our self-righteousness. That's that ongoing thing. When we're going to look at this, we could look at this like a formula, but the truth is it's not. Because sometimes we'll look at it like, yeah, conviction of sin, right? Then he persuades us of righteousness. And then there's this section on judgment. I can go one at a time. The truth is that this is going to happen cyclically, right? It's ongoing. It's not just this one-time thing. 
But that's the point of the gospel. Point of the gospel is that the Spirit, upon convicting us where we're made aware of our sin, doesn't just leave us there. He points us to the righteousness of Christ. And as we fix our eyes on the righteousness of Christ, we realize, oh man, I'm nothing like that. Repentance takes place. Transformation takes place. Dying to self takes place. Because the aim is to be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. This is the second work of conviction by the Holy Spirit. Persuasion. The third one is judgment. So he goes on to say, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. <clears throat> so, just totally honest, when it comes to this section in John 16, there's a lot of debate between theologians and commentators on what Jesus is actually saying. And these are by uh, people who are way smarter than I am, right? Uh, who have read way more books and uh, have a bunch of letters after their name. And when it comes to this, this last verse, um, not just this last verse, but really this section, they tend to go back and forth on what is Jesus actually talking about, right? And some find it difficult. So in light of that, I'm going to give it my best shot when it comes to where he says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Here's, here's where I'm going with this. When it comes to judgment, in this section, the context is Jesus thinking future tense, right? Like we're applying it personally, and so is Jesus, but he is also looking to what is going to happen through these disciples, right? Through the birth of the church, you can read Acts. So he's looking ahead of time, or he's, excuse me, he's looking in the future, when he says concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that Satan will be defeated on the account of Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, Jesus is implying that Satan will have no power over the believer. That as a result of his death and resurrection, the tyranny of Satan is going to be stripped by Christ. And as he saves sinners, he is restoring order to the way things ought to be. Right? That's what I'm looking at. When it comes to Jesus saving sinners, Satan is stripped of his power. But we've got to be clear on a couple of things. He is stripped of his power that doesn't mean the presence of sin is gone as well. Clearly, it is still around, right? Clearly, it is still around. But for the one who belongs to Jesus and has the Holy Spirit in him, the power of sin is no more. You can say no to sin as a result of what Jesus has done on the sinner's behalf on the cross. There is not only truth, but great hope because of Jesus' resurrection, Satan has no power over you. You can say no to sin. Say that one more time. If you belong to Jesus, that means the Holy Spirit abides in you. You can say no to sin. The presence is still around, right? Just think of your attitude this morning. It's not like everybody was, was all polite, right? Just think of your attitude this morning. 
the presence of sin obviously lingers. However, for the Christian, you have the power to say no to sin. The grace of God is what has rescued us from the wrath of God. And as a result, that has implication for you and I today. It is, not just look, it is not just this look ahead to heaven and being in the eternal presence of Christ and yeah, we look forward to that, that's cool. No, that has implication for you and I today. What we do, how we live. What we believe shapes how we live, right? And so those are the three ways upon which the Holy Spirit will convict us. Obviously, those aren't the only ones, but in light of John 16 is that he will convict us of sin, He will persuade us of righteousness and he will remind us through judgment of the grace of salvation. So, let's look at three ways to respond to that. Because we can look at that like a Bible study and say, okay, cool, great. I love the reminder. So let's look at three ways upon which we can respond. I'll tell you the three ways and then I'll walk through them. The first one is humility. The second one is joy. And the third one is boldness. Can't wait to talk about that one. Anyway, going to the first one. How do we respond? As a result of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the believer, how should you and I respond? The first thing ought to be humility. Remember, if we're looking to, if we want to be be aware of the righteousness of Christ, we first must be humbled by the acknowledgement of our sin. Like that's where we gotta start. Because when that happens, when that happens, it shouldn't be, and here's, here's my fear, because I do this, this isn't like just y'all. This is what we do. Too many times we're reminded of our sin or we're convicted of our sin, and you're like, yeah, my bad, okay. Anyway, moving on with my sandwich, right? Like. When it comes to being convicted of sin, there's, there's a root, that there's something happening beneath the surface. It is not just my bad, it is that in this sin that I participated in, that I believed, I believed that God wasn't good. I uh, removed worship from my life in that moment. I chose to disbelieve God himself in that sin. I fear that as the church, we just don't take sin seriously. We don't take sin seriously because we love to box the Christian life up into, for lack of a better word, a routine. You do your best during the week, you come on Sunday, maybe you'll hear an encouragement, maybe you'll hear something, and man, that is really good, I'm gonna write that in my journal. And then when we leave this building, we just kinda go back to, We default to who we used to be rather than to who Jesus has called us to be. And so we cannot be humbled if we're not made aware by our sin. Sometimes we even talk about sin or talk about us ourselves as sinners flippantly. Well, nobody's perfect. Everybody sins. Yes, I know. So does everyone else. It's not the point. The point is, as a result of that, as a result of my action, am I humbled at what I've just done? Am I humbled by my sin to look to my need for Jesus? In humility, in humility, after we've acknowledged our sin, that is where repentance takes place. 
That is where repentance takes place. Otherwise, when we're just aware of our sin and we call it my bad, that's not repentance. That's excusing it. That's justifying it. That's negotiating. That's not real repentance. Because real repentance is countercultural. Real repentance is not just turning away from sin, but it's turning away by what the world considers acceptable. It's not complying with conformity, but transformation. The church itself, upon hearing the gospel, was founded upon repentance. We're going to see in a minute in Acts 2 where the Apostle Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost and they cut him off and they ask, what do we need to do? He doesn't say, oh man, it's your bad, it's all good. You know, just change some things up, right? Like look at your calendar, see what you need to do differently. Uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't give them the practical things in terms of like, it's not that bad. Your sin wasn't too bad. Just make sure you don't do that again. They ask, brothers, what must we do? And he says, repent. Repent of your sin. He's not coming from a place of negotiation with sin. He's coming from a place of conviction in light of what the Holy Spirit is doing in him for them. Humility ought to breed repentance because it is in repentance that it breeds worship. We realize that the grace of God is our only hope. We realize in humility that the righteousness we seek isn't found somewhere. It's found in someone. Someone who paid our debt with his credit. Someone who paid with his life for our disobedience with his obedience. Humility ought to breed repentance and repentance ought to lead us to worship. What would it look like if we were a church who repented daily because of how serious we take sin. The reformer Martin Luther said that when God called us to repentance, he called us to repent for a lifetime. What would it look like for us to pursue humility? Humility breeds repentance, and repentance leads us to worship. The second thing is joy. In each of the contexts, each of the groups I found myself in, on Wednesday and on Friday, a lot of the things, excuse me, a lot of the things that we discussed were circumstantial. That doesn't mean they're not hard. That doesn't mean that they're not challenging. But part of the Spirit's work of persuasion is to remind us to choose joy. Persuasion includes choosing joy, but we can only choose joy if we're grounded in the truth. Because when we choose joy, our life isn't marked by our circumstances, but our life is marked by what Christ has done for us and what he's doing through us. That doesn't mean that, like, like hear me on this. That doesn't mean that I'm trying to dismiss your circumstance. Some of you might be in like troubling seasons, hard seasons, struggling seasons, challenging seasons, all of that. I'm not dismissing that at all. <laughs> what, I'm encouraging to, what I'm encouraging you to do is in light of that season that you find yourself in, 
to choose joy. That's what I want you to hold fast to. It's not so that everything would be okay. I mean, if you're really honest, when you became a Christian, did everything go away? Some things probably got worse. Like, just be straight up, right? Can't stand it when some Christians are like that. Everything is great. No, it's not, right? Maybe it's just because I'm cynical. Sometimes it feels like the seasons that we're in, we're just like holding on by the fingertips, right? And so my encouragement to you as you choose joy would be to choose joy because of what God has spoken, because of what God has revealed through his word. And that might be for the season you're holding on by the fingertips. Some of you find yourselves in really good seasons. That's awesome. I would also encourage you to uh, readjust your grip so that you can wrap around what God has already revealed and spoken through his word. The tendency in good seasons is like, oh, it's great. I can relax. Now, I, I would encourage you that as you continue to choose joy, that you would readjust your grip and wrap yourself around what God has revealed. I was sharing with the guys on Fridays, this is kind of a tangent. I was sharing with the guys on Friday, uh, if you're looking for a devotional, there's one called Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. It's one of my favorite. I love it. And I can't remember where, but in this one section, he is talking about um, the grace of, of a season. And so he kind of compares the season to that of, of, a, of a battle, like a war. And he says, when soldiers are in battle, you know, they're just trying to survive. They're trying to do everything that they need to, to, to survive, to win, to advance, and so on. And he goes on to say, after the battle is over, uh, they are experiencing a grace where they're able to readjust or, or redo some things. And he was very adamant about talking about that because, again, oftentimes I think Christians, after, after a battling season, sometimes we're like, oh, glad that's done. I'm good. And what Spurgeon is getting at is, if you ever notice, whether it's through video or pictures, after a battle, soldiers aren't just doing nothing, right? Soldiers are cleaning their weapons. They are restocking their ammunition. They are reinforcing their barriers. They are crying in one another's arms. They are mourning and grieving the loss of friends. Uh, there is stuff happening behind the scenes. And the truth is, that even though all of that stuff is happening, they also don't know when the next battle is going to happen. Could it happen tomorrow? Could it happen the week after? Could it happen a month later? It's the same thing, I think, for that of a Christian, right? That if you find yourself in a good season, man, let me just encourage you uh, to, to continue to choose joy, readjust your grip, and do whatever it is you need to do to, man, get deeper in the, in the Word of God, pursue community, pursue one another. Don't stop doing what you've been doing because the battle might come tomorrow. And, 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 and if you know other Christians who are just in that season where it's just an ongoing battle, what is it going to look like for you to come alongside of them? Like one of the biggest things that you always like see in movies and read through uh, historical documents is uh, reinforcements, right? When during the battle, they just want reinforcements, fresh uh, soldiers to help them. Sometimes that's, you're in a good season to come alongside of your Christian brother or sister. So choose joy. Third one, final one, is boldness. 
when we look at John 16, I'm, I'm trying to make it, uh, well, not just me, right, but really the Holy Spirit. Anyway, uh, when we look at John 16, we kind of make it personal, right? In terms of the conviction of our sin, in terms of our need for righteousness, in terms of what God has done for us and regarding uh, judgment. But in addition to that, uh, when we look at John 16, Jesus isn't only talking to them personally. This is where it goes beyond them. This is the part where it goes beyond them because when, it, when we rewind to John 14 and Jesus first told them about the Holy Spirit, he's not necessarily addressing them personally, but he tells them when the Holy Spirit's gonna come, he's gonna do a work through you. Essentially, the church is going to be birthed through you proclaiming the word and the Spirit doing a work in people. If you don't believe that, then you need to be reminded that Storehouse McAllen exists only because of the Holy Spirit. That is the only reason that Storehouse McAllen exists. This is the McAllen Creative Incubator. This is not the church. You are the church. And as a result, the Holy Spirit was working through someone when they preached the gospel to you, and now you're here. Or now you know Jesus. All of this that Jesus is working them or walking with them through is to remind them that the Holy Spirit is going to do a work for sinners and through sinners. So pray for boldness. Pray for boldness. Oftentimes, I hear the amens and the mm-hmm and ugh, that was good, right? My concern is that those stay in this building and those amens and mm's are left in the walls of what used to be McAllen's library. What does that look like when we leave, these, when we leave this building? What does boldness look like when you leave this building? Think about it. We could amen it all day. And sometimes when I've had too much coffee, I've said some pretty bold things about your sin. And then I get some feedback like, oh, that was good. Yeah, but what are you doing about it? I want you to look at Acts 2. We're going to look at verses 22 to 24 and then 37 to 38. This is Peter preaching. Then he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Check it. Peter wasn't hooking them up with good advice. He was hooking them up with good news. He wasn't telling them, you should try this book. And I'm not against books. But the primary source of proclamation was the gospel. And so Peter continues, or excuse me, they continue. They were cut to the heart. That is that they were convicted and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They interrupted his sermon. He actually keeps going after this. They interrupted his sermon. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Pray for boldness. Pray for boldness to preach the gospel. Not just share good advice. Not just to say that you're going to pray for someone, but actually do it. Actually pray for boldness. And I get it. There are many contexts in which that's difficult at times. Because I've talked to some of you about it. But every context has a place where at some point we just need to preach the gospel. Because one of the biggest lies, really one of the biggest misquoted uh, sayings was, was, what is it, St. Francis of Assisi, right? Uh, Preach the gospel and if necessary use words. That's dumb, right? Not to mention that's out of context. Right? Proclaim the gospel. Repentance and the regenerating of hearts came as a result of the gospel proclaimed. Not gospel sprinkles. The gospel proclaimed. Pray for boldness. And so as we wrap up, as I told you at the beginning, the ministry of conviction, the work of the Holy Spirit, when it concerns conviction, is for him to reveal and persuade us of our need for a righteousness that's not our own. Because when you and I get there, you can't just stay there. There's transformation involved. There's boldness involved. There's repentance that's involved. There's transformation that's involved. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of things happening in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning as we looked at what it means to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Remember, it is not just a declaration of guilt. He meets you where you are to persuade you to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we uh, close up our time uh, and as we think about conviction, uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest when it comes to conviction, I think, I think, uh, we only think of that declaration of guilt where we just sit there and just feel, not just guilty, but we feel crappy. Um, where we feel worthless. But God, the beauty of your word, the beauty of your truth, is that you meet us where we are and take us to where Jesus wants us to be. The beauty of your word, the beauty of your promises is that you extend grace, that is, unmerited favor to sinners. That you persuade us to look upon Jesus. Not just to be made aware of our self-righteousness, but to be stripped from it but to recognize that the righteousness that we are looking for is not found somewhere, but in someone, and that is Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, would you not just convict, but comfort us with that truth this morning? God, you take sin so seriously. We should, too. Convict us of that. Convict us of our sin. Uh, Holy Spirit, help us acknowledge our sins so that we are humbled. 
And as we are humbled, that it would breed repentance. And that repentance would lead us to worship. Lead us to worship you for what you have done for us in Christ, what you are doing in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we resist being stagnant Christians. Instead, may we be Christians that are transformed by the Holy Spirit to discern the pleasing, perfect, and good will of God. God, as we transition into a a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, may this be the continuation of our worship. We give um, as a result of what you have done for us and are doing in us. We give as a demonstration of transformation. We give so that we would be equipped resourcefully to continue to expand and extend your gospel here in McAllen and in the surrounding cities. We give because our metric for generosity is Jesus on the cross. And so may we take this time seriously. May we take this time as a worship, as a time of worship. So Lord, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to worship you and listen to your preached word. We ask these things in your name. Amen.